Well, if you missed equipping hour today, you missed a lot, to be quite frank with you. Um, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I will. I, I have been amazed over the last few years to have the number, see the number of people who will call or text one of us pastors about an issue that they're dealing with. And I think we literally just dealt with this for the last three weeks in equipping hour. I have literally had that conversation with someone where they're going through this thing. And I said, do you feel like you're kind of unequipped to to face this? Well, yeah, a little bit I'm like well, I'm not trying to be rude, but that's why we do equipping hour. So I say all that. And I know that's that's probably like I'm throwing the guilt trip on you, but there is a lot of really good stuff that gets shared there. And uh, if you missed this morning, he had a great message. Dylan Darnell did this morning. Had a fantastic message about suffering, trials, and uh, tests in the Christian life and what they accomplish. And, and uh, I thought that was incredible because we are in Genesis chapter 22. So that will dovetail very well with what we're going to talk about today. Genesis chapter 22. We have been, I have been, preaching through Genesis. It feels like forever. And I'm not halfway through the book, man. Literally, I saw, I saw that last night and was like, this is such a daunting task. So, but there's so much good stuff in it. So we'll continue on in it. Genesis chapter 22. So here's what I'm going to do. It's been a while um, since we've been in here. And so I want to try to basically give a real quick rundown of what we've seen in the last three chapters to set up what we're going to see today. Uh, Today, a lot of times, Genesis chapter 22 is oftentimes by commentators and theologians called uh, Abraham's trial, or sometimes they will call it uh, the trial of faith for Abraham. And I I want to say that's true. Obviously, if God asks you to sacrifice your son, your only son whom you love, that's going to be a trial of faith. But I actually want to bring out something else today, and that is this. That was a trial for Isaac as well. And we oftentimes miss that. We miss the fact that Isaac was by this time old enough to put up a fight. Remember, Abraham was 100 when he had this boy. At this point in time, Abraham's close to 120, around that age. And um, we don't know exactly what age they were. Uh, The commentators range anywhere from he was a teenager to he was 35. I'm going to make the argument the best that I can get is probably... uh, late teens, early 20s. He's not a little boy. Isaac is not a little boy when Abraham is leading him up the mountain. He carried the wood up the mountain. He knew what was going on with the sacrifice. He's asking his dad questions about it. And I'm saying all that to say this. You're going to see something today that I think is gospel foreshadowing incredible. Extraordinaire. And that is this. He realizes on the way up the mountain, I'm the sacrifice. And he could have overpowered his dad. He could have run away. He could have done a lot of things. And instead, what does he do? Faithfully submits to the plan. Knowing it's going to cost him his life. Having full assurance in the things that God has spoken and in the love his father has for him. That is incredible. And we're going to pull that out today. So first, let's do a little review. Okay? And then we'll get into this passage Let's start at chapter 19. That's really kind of the setup that we saw. We saw the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's chapter 19. We said there were three major points we brought out of that. 
that the only thing that was delaying God from instantly turning Sodom into a smoldering ash heap was that there were believers living in the city. And in fact, their presence was also what kept Zoar later from being swept away in God's judgment. That's a good thing to remember if you live in the culture we live in today. Number two, rather than being thankful for the salt and light of the believers in their midst, the rest of that wicked culture despised them because they thought those believers were oppressively judgmental. That's something to keep in mind if you live in the culture we live in today. The third thing we drew out was that God's word actually said the believers were the ones being oppressed by the lawless and wicked deeds of the unbelievers, the unrighteous. Second Peter 2.7 says that. It was exactly the opposite of what the wicked were saying. That's also something to keep in mind if you live in the culture we live in today. We also pointed out that Lot, for all of his faults and flaws, was still a true believer. The Scriptures tell us he is a true believer. We find him being called Righteous Lot in Second Peter. And in fact, we even find him being listed in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So Lot was obviously not a perfect man. And I'm certain no one here would want to be scrutinized under that same kind of judgment. You're not perfect. You're right. Only one man that ever lived was. And he's not me. But we also see God in his incredible mercy bringing Lot out of Sodom before he destroys it. Lot is not consumed in the judgment that God sends out on the wicked culture. Listen to that again. Lot was not consumed in the judgment that God sent on that wicked culture. That should bring us comfort today. Without a doubt, we see God's judgment on the wicked culture we live in today. And yet the Scriptures tell us God knows how to deliver the righteous. 2 Peter 2, 9-10 tells us this, quote, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. There's a whole sermon in that, but I'm not preaching that one today. So even in the midst of a wicked and perverse culture like the one that we find ourselves in today, God knows how to bring His wrath down on the wicked and still at the same time to preserve His own bride, His own special people. However, that does not mean that those people, that bride, God's own people will go without being tried or without being tested. They most certainly will and so will you. If you're part of His bride, you will be tested. Then we see something else. We see that even though God brought Lot out of Sodom in short order, it's a much more involved and long-term process to bring the Sodom out of Lot, if, if you will. We see the wicked sexual morals of Sodom being lived out through Lot's own daughters as they give birth to boys that are conceived through an incestuous affair with their father. Remember, the girls get Lot drunk. They take advantage of him after he's passed out. And they conceive through that Moab and Ben-Ami through this wicked, evil scheming. Those boys would be the fathers of the Moabites and the Ammonites, the two nations who would eventually be wicked, perverse, and principal enemies of Israel at various times throughout biblical history. <clears throat> All right. That's chapter 19. Chapter 20, we see Abraham becoming fearful and backsliding into his old deceiving ways. He tells the king of the Philistines, or the Abimelech, 
that Sarah is actually his sister. Ah, she's actually my sister. Where did we see that before? We saw him do that all the way back in chapter 12. Why? Well, he was scared. In 12, he was in Egypt. Here he's in, uh, he's in the Philistines land, but he does the same thing. He tells him, I, uh, she's actually my sister because he's afraid, hey, she's so good looking, they're going to kill me and, and try to steal my wife. By the way, both times he was rebuked for it by pagans. And by the way, both times he tries to justify it instead of just confessing it. Well, it really wasn't that bad. I mean, she, she is my half-sister. It should go without saying that's not um, behavior we want to emulate. And yet, God in His mercy is not done with Abraham. God has promised Abraham that He would make and shift and mold Abraham into something, that He would bring forth from Abraham something, and He's going to do it, period. He loves Abraham regardless of Abraham's faults and flaws, and it's the same for you. And that should bring you comfort, Christian. You're not perfect. You're very imperfect. And God loves you even through that. He doesn't love you because of who you are. He loves you in spite of it. <laughs> He's going to make and mold something else. He's going to shape Christ in you and through you. And He's doing the same thing with Abraham. Finally, in chapter 21, we see the birth of the long-promised Son. 25 years of waiting and hoping in the promise of God. That's what it took before Isaac arrived. <coughs> Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 90 years old at the time when Isaac was born. So all is going well now, we think, because finally the promise has come until Sarah notices Ishmael is teasing and torturing little Isaac. Well, that's no good. The same Ishmael that had come to be through Sarah's own mastermind scheme. The same Ishmael that was born because Sarah decided it'd be a great idea to help God out and that Abraham should take her servant Hagar as another wife and have a child through him. The principal rival to the promise of God is Sarah's own scheming. Well, that's fitting. And I bet you could find that same theme in your life. The principal rival to what God is doing is what you want to do. I got a better plan. I got my own scheme. I can do it better. I'll do it my own way. I'll do it the way I've seen it done. I'll do it the way I've seen it done in the culture around me. That's exactly how they got the plan they got. I'm not going to wait on God to do what He wants to do. I'll help Him out. We see Sarah becoming enraged when she sees Ishmael teasing little Isaac. And so she sends Hagar and Ishmael away. The boy, Ishmael, grows up. He becomes an expert hunter. Eventually, his mother, Hagar, gets a wife for him from among the pagan Egyptians. Meanwhile, Isaac is also growing up. He's growing up. And he is the son that Abraham and Sarah love. He's the son of promise. The son they've waited for all of these years. He's carrying all of their hopes and dreams in himself. And that brings us to chapter 22. Let me give a little introduction to that chapter. Here in 22, 
We see chapter 22 clearly illustrating. In fact, it tells us explicitly the very first verse. Here's what it says. Now, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. God was the one who tested Abraham. God did not just allow testing into Abraham's life. We like to, we like to say it that way because it sounds so wonderful and Arminian and we, we think we can take the, you know, the impetus off of God. That is not what the Scripture says. It says very clearly, God was the one doing the testing. God tested Abraham. God is actively sending the test or the trial. I have news. God will do that to you too. There will be certain times and seasons that will be marked by tests and trials. And they are there because God has sent them to you. You didn't just accidentally bump into it. It wasn't something God just saw coming and couldn't stop it. God actively sent it and He's doing it for a reason. The test and the trial is in your life for a reason. And I want to get to what that is. But let me show you this real quick because sometimes people have problems with this. Let me show you some other verses of Scripture that show you clearly God's not just allowing testing and trials. He is actively sending it. Proverbs 17.3 says the crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests the hearts. Jeremiah 9.7 says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and I will test them. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and I test the minds of men. Psalm 11.5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. Psalm 66.10, for you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. Exodus 20.20, when Moses is talking to the people, Moses said to the people, quote, do not fear, for God has come to test you. Specifically. By the way, he goes on and says the reason God has come to test you is so that the fear of him could be in you and you would not sin. He has come to test you for a reason. He's still molding you, making you, shaping you. First Peter 6, 7 says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. Why? Well, the very next piece. So that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, even though it's tested by fire, might be found. So that the genuineness of your faith might be found. What is this test? What is this trial accomplishing? We're going to find out what your faith is really made of. Well, why does God need to do that? I mean, if God is the, the teacher in this, He knows everything to begin with. Why does He need to test me to know what's in me? He doesn't. You do. You don't know what's in you. Yes, I do. No, no. The problem is, a lot like my own students at times, we often have a much higher self-evaluation than is necessary or warranted. It's much easier for us to think of ourselves as much more mature, much farther along, much more knowledgeable, much better than we really are. What does the test serve? It shows us the reality or the pretentiousness of our faith. How much of your faith is real and how much are you just pretending? How much of this faith has really been worked in, if you will? And how much is just something I know? It's just a scent. It's just, 
you know, biblical knowledge that really hasn't worked itself into my soul yet, into my spirit yet, into my life yet. I'm going to tell you something. <clears throat> Typically, a test of your faith will involve offering something you greatly desire at the cost of your biblical principles or morals. It will be a test of your faith. Do you really believe it? You say Jesus is worth it all? Oh, is he? Is he worth your promotion? Is he worth the big raise? Is he worth the glamour? Is he worth that? You understand where I'm going with this? It's easy to say Jesus is Lord. It's easy to say He's worthy of all. It's an entirely different thing whether your life shows that or not. He's worthy. We just sang it. He is worthy. He is, is He worthy of this? Yes, He is. Yes, the truth is He is worthy. Is He worthy of you? Is He worthy of you laying down your own dreams? Your own thoughts? Yes, He is. And the question is, when He asks you for them, will you be truly a son of Abraham? He asked for the most precious thing Abraham had. And Abraham didn't delay. He got up early the next morning and said, so be it. That's hard. You know what we'll do? We'll wrestle with it. I want this. Oh, God, I'll give you my other stuff. No, I want this. I want this thing that is so precious to you that maybe, you're even, maybe you even have enough biblical knowledge to know this thing is from the Lord. Oh, it, it, it's, it's a blessing from the Lord. Okay, well, I want that. Because at some point in time, God is going to show you whether you are valuing Him or whether you're valuing the things He can do for you, the things He has given to you, which one of those are higher? In your heart, have you elevated these things too highly? The test of your faith will typically involve offering something you greatly desire at the cost of your biblical principles or morals. If you really want this thing, you can have it, but it's going to cost your integrity. Is it worth it? It's really easy for us to say, well, no, I wouldn't be worth it, but it's an entirely different thing to live that out. Will you wait on the Lord to deliver it to you the right way, His way, His time? Those are the times when your faith is on trial. Okay. Let me say something about testing. I've taught science and worked in education for 15 years now, so I have seen and given and taken and been around a lot of tests and I have observed a few things and one of them is this there is a curious trend of many students to come into a test with a highly inflated self-assessment on their mastery of the subject I've had a I, I, I wish I got a dollar for every time I had a student come in I say alright you ready for it today oh yeah yeah did you spend all night studying did you well no, I, I didn't really need to study why not? Well, I already knew this stuff. This is going to get interesting. I already knew it. I didn't really need to study. I'm like, oh, okay. All right. I guess we'll find out. Sometimes they come into a test with a certain amount of dread because they're really unfamiliar with the uh, subject still. Sometimes they're just more apathetical towards it. 
I don't really care. It doesn't really matter. I, true story. had a student once that was right on the line of passing or failing a chemistry course I was teaching. I mean, right on the line. By the way, this was in Oklahoma. In fact, his course grade came right down to the final. Basically, what it came down to was if he passes the final, he passes the class. Now, I know half of you think my teachers all hated me and wanted me to fail. That is not true. Most teachers do not want you to fail. In fact, we actively want you not to fail. If you're really a poor student, we certainly don't want you to fail. <laughs> I'm not going to have you again. <laughs> pass. I'm not asking to make an anxious pass. I am hoping this dude's going to pass. He's a senior. I'm hoping he's going to pass, right? So I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm doing all I can to help him. I give him some good study materials. Send him home, right? Day of the final comes. I'm rooting for the kid. He's not there. 10, 15 minutes into the final, he's still not there. So I get on my computer, go through all my records, I find his phone number, I call him at his house. He answers with his really groggy voice. I realize I, I'm, I'm waking him up. Like the final's like at 9 o'clock or whatever, right? you know, or maybe 10. Like mid-morning, right? Ugh. So I'm like, hey, so-and-so, get up here, man, hustle up. I'll wait on you, I'll let you take this final, man, I'll let you, just come on. And he's, he says this, he says, well... Uh, look, I've been thinking about that. I mean, I don't really need chemistry to graduate. If I fail the course, I can still graduate. Like, yeah, that's that's true. So it's not really a big deal. So no offense or anything, but I think I'm just going to go back to sleep. What a response, huh? And yet I've seen people who call themselves Christians have the same kind of attitude toward a trial or a test that the Lord has put them in. That doesn't really matter. That matters. It does. It's talking, it's saying, it's speaking about your own faith. The genuineness of your confession. Whether it's true or whether it's just words. The point's this, though. Tests allow a teacher to see just how far along a student really is. And yet if God's the teacher, why the test? Because the test also allows the student to see just how far they really are. We can think of ourselves much more highly than we ought, and God may well use a test or trial to reveal to us just where we are, and just how much work we still need in that area. We might also point out that tests and trials, by the way, are not the same thing as temptations. Right? Tests and trials are put into our lives to purify and refocus our Christian walk. They strengthen our faith. They cause it to grow and mature. And I wish I could preach a whole sermon on that. Dylan did a great job of teaching that this morning. I wish all of you could have heard it. It was very, very good. But believe it or not, the truth is you cannot become a Christian, a mature Christian. You cannot become a mature Christian without tests and trials. Period. That's what James says. Doesn't that excite you to hear that? And one of those promises, I claim it, Lord. Promise of Scripture. But it's true. Book of James says this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. Or the New King James says patience. That's the way I learned it. And let that steadfastness have its full effect so that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What is this test doing? It's working something in you. It's maturing you. 
Yeah, you've said all these things. You believe all these things. Oh, I believe all these things. I, I've got all this really good doctrine, the stuff I believe about the Lord. That's good. Obviously, I want you to believe the right stuff. But at some point, those beliefs have to translate into action. At some point, our life has to reflect what we say we believe. It's not enough to say lying is wrong. You have to eschew lying, right? It's not enough to say, well, we should have integrity and love integrity over money or greed or power or position. We have to live that out then, too. All right. So the end result of tests and trials is that we become mature Christians. Christianity is more than just head knowledge. It's the living out of a different kind of life. I think that's very important for us to to, uh, realize and keep in mind as we are quickly moving into a new phase of American history. I think you will quickly see persecution. Maybe a little bit here and there, just little bits. But it will get more. might just start out with words. It might end up very quickly into, well, if you believe that, we're not going to have you working here. I mean, we've seen that already. I've seen people lose their jobs for their beliefs. We've seen it since the early 2000s. I saw a guy that was fired as a science teacher because he did not believe in four and a half billion year old earth and that people evolved from an ape-like ancestor. That was enough for him to get fired. Actually, that was enough not just to get fired, but to lose his job and his career. Roger DeHart was his name, if you ever want to look him up. And I think we'll see more of that. And the question's going to be, to be, as the heat gets turned up little by little, are you just going to try to go along? Are you going to be the proverbial frog in the pot? Let me just compromise more so I can get along and not have to walk out this trial? Or will you endure? So without further ado, let's really get into this passage. Chapter 22. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offering offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, first off, I've I've actually had um, Bible people who were skeptics say, obviously, here, the Bible's wrong. How so? He says, well, God calls um, Isaac Abraham's only son. That's not true. Abraham had another son. Well, that is a fact. Abraham had another son. But you'll notice his other son's no longer there. His other son's been run off into the wilderness, and Abraham is does he's not with Abraham anymore. He's not going to see him again. So he's all he has left. That that really brings a point to the story, and I mean that. Because when you think about his inheritance, The only thing he has left is Isaac. Isaac is not just his only son, the one son that's here, but he's the son of promise. He's the son you love. He's what all your hopes and dreams are pinned to. And God says, Abraham, I want him. I want you to offer him as a burnt offering on the mountain of which I shall tell you. Do you think that pierced his heart? I have, a, uh, I have a theory, and it's only a theory. I can't prove this. It says he got up the next morning, early in the morning. My guess is he didn't sleep much that night. Pretty early to get up, pretty easy to get up early in the morning when you haven't really been asleep yet. 
My guess is Abraham does what sometimes I have to do. You know it's the right thing to do, and you know if you sit around and think about it long enough, you'll eventually justify your way out of it, right? Eventually, we're black belts at justifying our own sin and our own selfishness and our own self-will. And there are times when I know clearly what the Lord is commanding me to do, and I know I have to obey right then. Because if I think about it long enough, I might not have the strength to do it. But I've got the grace in that moment to do it. I've got to do it. And my guess is it's the same thing for Abraham. This is the hardest thing he's ever been asked to do. And I promise you, if we'll read back through the, the chapters before this, we'll know Abraham's been asked to do some hard things. Leave everyone you know. Go to a land that you don't even know where I'm going. I'll show you later. God has asked some very hard things of Abraham. And this is probably the toughest to date. And so Abraham rises early in the morning. Verse 3 says, He saddles his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. <laughs> I think it's kind of humorous that there's no mention of him talking to Sarah about this. <laughs> hey, Sarah, I'm taking our son, our only son, the son we love. I'm going to go sacrifice him as a burnt offering. I don't think it would have went over well. But he doesn't. He gets two of his servants, his young men with him, and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering. How hard would that task be? Cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, he's got multiple days to be able to talk himself out of this, to be able to back up. Hey, maybe just take the long route. Take a little lap around the mountain. But he went directly there. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkeys. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. There is an entire... I think this chapter has so much... I could preach on this chapter for the next four months and not exhaust it. There's so much in here. By the way, the, the word boy, I and the boy, some, some translations will say I and the lad. But it's actually the same Hebrew word that means young man. It's not typically used of a little boy. He's not Jericho's size. He's a young man. And God is basically saying, Abraham... Do you love me and my word more than even him? And Abraham says, I and the boy, I and the young man will go over and we will worship and we will come back to you. That's incredible. The faith that this man had is incredible. As I said before, theologians and commentators are divided over how old he really is. MacArthur says he thinks he's at least 20 would make dad at least 120. He's not just a little boy. And sometimes we see that in the paintings. Have you seen that? All right, you see the little, like, you know, illustration, the Bible illustration, and you got this little kid that's all tied up on the altar. That was not how it was. He knows what's going on, he knows what's required for a sacrifice. And it probably stood out to you as you're reading that he says to his servants, both he and Isaac will return to them. Incredible the faith this man has. Hebrews eleven seventeen tells us what Isaac was thinking at the time. Here's what it says. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac 
And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. What a... What an incredible foreshadowing to whom it was said in Isaac, your seed shall be called. And he concluded that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. He thought he thought for sure I'm going to this mountain and I'm going to kill this boy. Because that's what God has asked me to do, and it's going to kill me to do that. It's going to hurt my heart all the way through. It's going to run a sword through me to do that. But I will obey God. And God, when I do that, will raise my son back up because I know God has made promises to me about this boy and those promises are not fulfilled. And God is a keeper of his word. And on that, on the basis of that, knowing that God is a keeper of his word, knowing that God loves him, knowing the character of God on that basis, he makes this journey. He knows God is not going to ask for something like child sacrifice as just a way to please himself. He knows the character of God. And I have bad news for you, beloved. Sometimes we don't. We think God is taking this thing out of our life just to hurt us, just because he doesn't know. He doesn't know how much I want this. He doesn't know how much I need this. No, He knows more than you do. He knows that this thing will hurt you if it stays in your life. And He'll rip it out because He loves you. I want to think of myself at times as a good dad. I'm probably pretty average. But God is not. If there was a young man in my daughter's life that I knew was going to bring her hurt and pain, do you think I would get rid of that? With all that's within me. If God looked down and saw that in your life and He is a good dad, would He do the same? Would He take care of His children? And yet sometimes we don't have the courage to listen. I know, God, you want me to do this, but I just don't know. That's, that's pretty painful. You think it's painful now? Disobey Him and see how painful it will be in the future. You think it's painful to obey the Lord? Try it the other way and see what happens. No, He is a good Father who loves you. You're His own special people. How much does He love you? He loves you enough to die for you. He's not doing, he's not taking you through a test or a trial just to get his kicks or his jollies. It's fun. He's taking you through that test and that trial because not only is it showing you what's in your heart, it's actually in the long run good for you. So we know that Abraham has incredible faith in God. Abraham thinks God is going to resurrect Isaac. He thinks he's going to have to put Isaac to death, watch the boy die, and then burn him. I can't even imagine that from the the heart of a father. That is, I can't even imagine that. Abraham thinks that's what God's required of me, and that's what I will do. I'll just swallow the pain and I'll walk it, because that's what God's asked. That's incredible. That's incredible. 
By the way, the Bible says if you have faith in Christ, you are of the seed of Abraham. You're on the same faith journey. Where God will require of you things that hurt. And you will do it on faith. I don't know how this is. I just know God wants me to do this. It hurts. I don't want to do it. But I'm going to. Why? Because God said to. And I am going to honor God above all. I will show His worthiness above all. I will exalt His worth above all. We have an entire word that comes just from that. Exalting the worth or the worthiness is called worth-ship. Worship, that's what worship is. Worship is not just singing slow songs on Sunday morning. It is showing a watching world that we value Christ and His Word above all else. Even above our own personal comfort. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. That's an incredible phrase, and we'll come back here in just a second. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. This is not, by the way, this is not Abraham being coy and Isaac not understanding what's going on. Isaac definitely understands what's going on now. He realizes, I'm the burnt offering. I'm the sacrifice. So they went, both of them together. I hate that this is translated in English, but how can you translate this well? It's it's translated that way. The Hebrew phrase means they went agreed. They both went agreeing together. They understood the plan. They knew what was going on. Isaac has done some incredible... I mean, he's got incredible faith. He realizes, I'm going to be put to death and God's going to raise me up. That's the plan. Let's do it. He knew this is not going to be easy. This is going to be painful. I mean, in his mind, right? Look at the gospel foreshadowing going on here. Isaac knows what's going on. He asks the million-dollar question, right? Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Abraham answered him prophetically, by the way. We see repeated throughout the New Testament, God will provide a lamb for Himself. Why would God have to provide a lamb for Himself? You can't find a lamb good enough. I can find a lamb without spot or wrinkle. It's not unblemished. Even the most unblemished lamb that was ever sacrificed was not without blemish. If you were able to see every single little cell and every single little part inside and out, you would never find one. But God has one. And His name is Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb without blemish. Who will God provide for the sacrifice Himself? Verse 9, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there. And he laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. You think a 120-year-old man is going to bind up a 20-year-old? Look, I've got news for you. When I'm, because uh, I teach high school, when I'm in class, <coughs> I realize I'm probably rougher than most. And I wrestle around with my boys all the time. Mostly because they see the need to jump me all the time. Okay? They do. 
time to time, they'll come in. They're like, they're going to throw me in a headlock or something. We're going to, we're having judo lessons at the front of the class. Actually, one year, last day of school, we moved all the desks out, put down the mats, and we did do judo. Do you remember that? That was not smart of us. I'm not going to lie. Okay. Somebody got hurt. We were all in trouble. Most of all me. But we did because I'm stupid. So I say that, though, to say this. Hey, when Buff and Kyle were in high school, it was still fun. Throw them around. Do you think if I... I'm just 40. It's not like I'm an old man. It's not like 120. Do you think if I decided I was going to take Buff and sacrifice him, do you think I could bind him? No help. I don't get the young men. Left them with the donkeys. Young men didn't come. They didn't help him bind his son. You know why? Because his son knew the plan and his son submitted to it. I promise you, if Buff thought I was going to put a knife in his chest, I, there's no way I could get him subdued. Okay? I'd have to knock him out first, like catch him when he's not looking or something, right? It's not going to happen. A 120-year-old man is not going to subdue a strong, able-bodied 20-year-old. Not his own son. And yet his son trusts and loves his father enough to say, this is the plan. I don't understand. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's the heart's posture of Isaac. Bound his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Let's go on. Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. We always, we always see these pictures of like he raises this knife over his head and he's going to plunge it down into Isaac's chest. My guess is he was probably getting more ready to slit his throat. Would you like that? All right, I'm here. Grab a hold of his head. Take your knife and get ready to slit your own son's throat. And the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Do not lay your hand. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Don't harm him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Why does this test exist? Because it's Abraham that we're getting the Savior through. It is obvious gospel foreshadowing. It is Abraham and to Abraham's seed that the Messiah would come. <coughs> My daughter asked me last night, I was telling her about that she had some questions about the gospel and we were ta talking to her about how the Lord brought the gospel even to our family, right? Because we weren't Jewish, we were Greek. So, oh, are we still Greek? You know, of course, the kid's trying to understand. We're Greek? That's crazy. I didn't know we were Greek. Well, we're not Greek in that sense. So we're still Greek? I said, no, that's the incredible thing. We're, we aren't Greek anymore. You are not Greeks. Quit saying that, you dispensational mess. You're not. If you have faith in God, you have been adopted into, placed into the lineage of Abraham. You are the true Israel of God, the Bible says. You're not Greek anymore. That's what He, he brought you out of. 
You are one of his descendants. Why are you one of his descendants? Because you have the same faith that Abraham had. Now, you may not have it to that extent yet. Yours may not be developed like it was to here. God is still developing your faith. You're still on the same kind of faith journey that Abraham was. Abraham's life is laid out for us as a type and a foreshadow. We're going to see the kind of life that God is going to call us into. The same kind of faith walk that Abraham had. Where you're walking along in a land you don't know, in a place that's not familiar to you. And God asks for you to do things that sound very crazy to the rest of the culture around you. And yet you do them because you, you value Him as worthy. That's the faith that He has. That's the faith that you have. What do I do when I go through tests and trial? You look at Christ. What do I do when I go through? I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the culture that everything's turning against me and people don't like me because of, of my faith. Guess what? You're not the first. They hated Jesus too. Don't get too awful upset at them. It's not that they hate you. They hate the Christ in you. When you're in a culture that's wicked and Christ-hating and that culture can see Christ coming out of you, they will hate you too. They hated Jesus and He never sinned. There's not one ever, been ever a soul that has hated Christ for good reason. Ever. And when Christ comes out of you, the same people that hate Him will hate you too. And you will go through tests. And you will go through trials. And it's not going to destroy you because God is still with you. But it is going to refine you. Try you and test you like gold. You've probably heard it before, but how is gold tested and refined? You heat up the fire. I mean, you get it hot. You know what starts happening? Well, the gold melts, but so does all the impurities. All the impurities melt, and they come to the surface. And those impurities are skimmed away. They're called dross. And that was how the refiners would test and try and refine gold. Here's some interesting things you may or may not know. Do you know how they knew that the gold was ready? You could sit over the top of it and see your reflection in it. What's God doing? He's testing me. He's trying me. He's refining me. And He's making it easier to see His own reflection in you. He's pulling the dross away little by little. Pulling the dross away little by little. Sanctifying you. Making you more like Christ. By the way, would you like to know what the last impurity to come out of gold is? Silver. Look, that's a precious metal too. Ah, man, I've really learned a lot about the Lord. You might have. But maybe you're still silver. And maybe God's going to put you back in the fire. And maybe God's going to refine you. And try you. And make you even more like Christ. And one day you're going to stand on the other side of that trial, on the other side of that test, and look back and think back to, man, remember those days when I just struggled with that? And the Lord brought me through it? He is with you in the trial. He's watching His face, His reflection come out of you. That's what the trial is for for you. That's what it was for for Abraham. He's not putting you in the trial to destroy you. You're not Sodom. You're Abraham. 
And though your sins merit destruction, he's chosen to love you, to change you, to refine you. He's chosen to show his glory through you. So don't fret. Don't fear the trial. Don't fear the test. God is with you through it. He will use it. He'll make a better you because he's getting rid of you and he's bringing out Christ. I'd like to go on. There's so much more, but I think we're going to stop there today. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word that you show us that you are the one that leads us through trials and tests. That when you ask us to do the hard things, that you're walking with us. That there's never been a time that you've ever asked us to do anything harder than what you've done yourself. Purify us with those tests, God. That the genuineness of our faith, being more precious than gold, would be found to the praise and honor of Christ. Thank you for your word, God. Let us be strengthened by it. I ask you be with everyone here, Lord, that if they're going through tests or as the trials come, that you'd remind them you'll be with them just as you were with Abraham, just as you were with Isaac, that you're also with them. I thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.